You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Well, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Today we are embarking on a new journey through a new book of the Bible. And so today's message is not your typical sermon. However, it is an important precursor to the series. We need to set the table before we come together to eat. We need to till the soil and check our surroundings rather than jump headlong into a text without knowing where we're going or what's going on. So today is all about time travel. Time travel. We want to go back to 51 AD. We want to discover the circumstances surrounding Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Who were they? Where did these people live? What's going on? And why is this letter so important for us today? They say that the beginning is a good place to start. So let's see what we can uncover from Paul's opening remarks. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we turn our hearts towards you. We pray for you to bless the preaching of your word this morning. Yes, on one hand, we are introducing ourselves to this early church And yet, God, I pray that we would walk away encouraged this morning, that we would not walk away with a head full of facts and figures and and a little bit of historical knowledge and understanding of what was going on at the time, but that we would walk away encouraged by your word because it is living and active and powerful, and it is ready to divide and pierce our hearts. So, God, I pray that it would do that this morning and that it would do so powerfully. We submit to you. We surrender our wills, our minds, our hearts to you this morning. In your name, amen. Let me ask you a question. What makes or breaks a church? Or maybe I should put it this way. What makes a good church good? I think most of us have no problem pointing out a church's deficiencies. It's in our nature to grumble and complain and focus on the bad. But what makes a good church good? good? What sets one church apart from so many others so that that church, we can honestly look at that church and evaluate and say, you know what? That is a good church. When it comes to gospel ministry, what is it that the Lord is looking for in his bride? What is God's standard? What does he call a good church? Well, he tells us all throughout the New Testament, but he also shows us through the faithful example of men and women people worth imitating, and that is certainly true of the Thessalonian church. They were a church worth imitating. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4 says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. So Paul says, I boast about you. I brag about you everywhere that I go. He isn't even worried about giving this church a big head. He's not worried about stroking their ego. Instead, he says, look, I'm proud of you. 
You guys are doing it right. In fact, I am so proud of you, I brag about you everywhere that I go. I tell all the other churches, be like the Thessalonians. So this church was a brag-worthy church, a church that we all want to get to know. We want to learn by example. We want to be a church like that. So much of the Christian life is caught as much as it is taught. So let's get to know this excellent church by reading their mail and following their lead. But first we need to break this greeting, this opening phrase apart. Because verse one introduces so much more than just a customary greeting. It's more than just a hello. It gives us the who, what, and where for the entirety of the letter. And more specifically, it provides four introductions for understanding the text. Four necessary introductions for approaching this letter. First of all, we are introduced to the pastors. The pastors. Our letter opens with three men, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And Paul is the first because he is the leader. I've heard it said so many times before, and I'm sure you have too, that even anarchy groups have leaders. You, you can't have a group without leadership. And even within leadership, you must have leadership. And that's what we have here with the Apostle Paul. He was the leader. His name simply means small, but there was nothing small about his ministry. He was a fearless evangelist. He was a ferocious debater and a faithful shepherd. Silvanus, that's the Latin name for Silas, which is Arama in, its, in its Aramaic form is the Hebrew name Saul. So when Luke wrote Acts, he preferred to Silas as Silas. He didn't refer to him as Silvanus. So for whatever reason here, he's referred to as Silvanus. But this is Silas, the name that we are so familiar with in the book of Acts. Silas would eventually transition from Paul and become Peter's secretary. So he was a faithful man. He was an experienced shepherd. He was a well-known pastor. And then finally, Timothy, which means honoring God. We looked at Timothy a little over a year ago in Philippians 2. He was Paul's chief disciple and Paul's son in the faith. It was Timothy who went back to Thessalonica to check up on them and to report back to Paul. These three men played a significant role in the founding and the formation of this early church, the Thessalonians. They were the planters, the preachers, and the teachers. They were the faithful men that God had set aside to start this ministry. They were the pastors. And that's the first introduction that we have here in our text, the pastors. Next, we are introduced to the people. The people, he says, to the church. We have heard it said time and time again that the church isn't a building. The church is a people. God didn't call this property to preach the gospel or to make disciples and go. This building can't come to Christ. It can't grow in Christ, and it can't reach others for Christ. Only people can do that. This building is merely a tool. It is a blessing, but these facilities facilitate, and that's it. That's all they do, because the church is not this building. This church is the blood-bought people of God. That word church is a popular Greek word that we have seen 114 times all throughout the New Testament. It's ekklesia. It's a common word used for assemblies. And prior to the church, the Greeks used this word to describe how legislators from the city of Athens would come together and meet regularly to discuss politics. It's a word used to describe an assembling of people 
who have something in common. They gathered regularly at a certain location and they assembled for a purpose. You can see why church, ecclesia, is such a good word to describe our fellowship, our time of coming together. Because we assemble as the body of Christ. We assemble because we are saved. We have Christ's sacrifice on the cross in common. Our sins have been forgiven and we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God himself. We gather regularly at a certain location here in this building on the Lord's day because Sunday is the day that Jesus rose from the grave. And we assemble for a clearly defined purpose a purpose that we see on the wall every time we walk through those doors. We gather to know Jesus and to make him known. As I was thinking about this the other day, it dawned on me that if we wanted to, we could really break it all down into three verbs, three actions that encompass the goals, the purpose, the mission of the church. Specifically this church, but I would argue that that we could break down three action items for the church as a whole. What is our mission? What is our goal? Why do we come together? What is the purpose for our gathering? I know I didn't leave you a lot of room on your sheet, but you might want to write these down in the margin because it's really important for us to never lose sight of our church's goals, our church's purpose. So what are the goals of this church? Why do we gather? And what does God expect us to do? I can think of three purposes. First, we gather to glorify. We gather to glorify. Philippians 3.3 says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. God's church has been called to worship by the Spirit and to glory in Christ That's why we sing, we give, and we pray regularly. As we turn our hearts in one mind and one spirit towards our creator, our savior, and our friend, we gather to glorify. But we also gather to grow. We gather to grow. Flip over to Colossians 1. Colossians chapter 1, just one book before 1 Thessalonians. Colossians chapter 1, and we'll look at verse 28. This is, in a way, our church's life verse. It was the first passage that I shared with you after becoming your senior pastor. and It is a good reminder for us. It's something that we should not forget as we move forward in ministry, because this is what ministry looks like. Colossians 1.28, the apostle says, him, meaning Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Church, that is what we do. We proclaim Christ by warning everyone and teaching everyone with all of the wisdom that is contained in God's word. Why? So that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Everyone, everyone, everyone. No man left behind. No child, no senior, no rich, no poor, no strong or struggling, no abled, no disabled. But everyone gets all of Christ and all of his wisdom until all are mature. That was Paul's goal. 
That was the goal for the church, and it has never changed. That is our goal as well. That's why Paul did what he did, and that should motivate us as well. That's what every faithful minister and ministry of the gospel has ever shot for, and that is why we gather to grow. We gather to glorify and to grow, and then finally, we gather to go. We gather to go. You've heard me repeat it time and time again. We gather to worship, and then we scatter to witness. We take what we have learned here, and we put it into practice. We take Colossians 1.28 to the streets, to the office, to our friends and our coworkers. We proclaim Christ, and we evangelize to see God's family, the church, the ecclesia of God grow so that they in turn can glorify and grow and go. This is the local church. This is the ecclesia of God, God's people. And the Thessalonians, they were doing it right. They were a Colossians 128 sort of church, glorifying and, and growing and going. They gave Paul an incredible amount of joy, more than most churches, many of the churches that he planted. In fact, when he's writing this letter, guess where he is? He's in Corinth. Now, we all know a thing or two about the Corinthian church. Imagine, here is the Apostle Paul in Corinth, surrounded in this megachurch of people who are fighting each other, who are tolerating sin, who are having all of these immature spiritual baby issues within their congregation. And he receives word from Timothy, hey, the Thessalonian church, they're doing great. They're doing wonderful. How would you feel if you were the Apostle Paul? Of course, his heart is going to burst with thankfulness and praise to God for this church that is doing it right. They were the church. They did gospel ministry and that they, they came together, they glorified God, they grew in Christ, and then they went out and they shared the gospel wherever they were. That's the second introduction. We've met the pastors and we've met the people. Third, we are introduced to the place. The place, he says, to the church of the Thessalonians, not the Americans or the Washingtonians, but the Thessalonians. Thessalonica held a special place in the heart of Paul. He arrived there right after a hard ministry experience in Philippi. Many of us, you'll remember from our study in Philippians, that Paul had commanded an evil spirit to come out of a fortune-telling girl, and her owners were not very happy about it. So much so, they publicly attacked him and Silas. They stripped him naked. They beat them with rods within an inch of their lives and then threw them into prison. And not just prison, the inner prison, the worst part of prison, where they stretch them out in stocks, both their hands and their feet, without bathroom breaks. Not a good day in ministry. In fact, it was a terrible day in ministry. Most of us would probably cry like babies if we had a day like that. But Paul and Silas began singing hymns. Picture it. There they are, bloody, naked, filthy, and humiliated. And yet... Acts 16.25 says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. That's incredible. 
That's unbelievable. And so God then starts an earthquake and the jailer gets saved and the magistrates release them and everything flips over on its head. And it's time for the group to then move on from Philippi to the next town. Let's go ahead and look at that journey together in Acts 17. So turn with me to Acts 17. Acts 17. It's the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. And we might think that after what happened in Philippi, Paul really needs to take a break. I mean, after all, he's earned a sabbatical. But that's not what he does. He leaves Luke behind to pastor that new church in Philippi, and he immediately sets out towards the west along the Via Ignatia, Rome's highway. And that brings us to Acts 17, starting in verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So they traveled about 90 miles west through a couple of small towns until they reached Thessalonica. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, suffering first, then glory, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So much for a sabbatical. So much for a much-needed break, for a vacation. Instead, Paul just keeps on preaching. He keeps on proclaiming Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so as to present everyone mature in Christ. He just keeps on keeping on. Verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So the Greeks, the Gentiles, they are converted Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. That's a big deal. That is a big deal, a serious accusation to bring against someone in the Roman Empire. If you were an official and someone came to you and said, this person over here is claiming treason or, or trying to sway other people from their loyalty to Caesar to another king, if that accusation were to be brought before you as a Roman official, you were required to act. You couldn't sit on that. You couldn't treat it like it was nothing. That's a big deal. Verse 8. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard those things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So they fined them. And after being beaten, imprisoned, fined, and rejected over and over and over again, you might think, okay, whew, they got out of Thessalonica. Now it's time for Paul to take a break. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the closest bed and breakfast. No, they went into the nicest golf course. 
No, they went to the best restaurant. No, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Because that's what these guys did. These were, these were men who were dedicated to the gospel. And in the grand scheme of things, Thessalonica was just a blip on the map for their journey. And we don't know how long they stayed in the city. We do know that from verse 2 that they preached for three Sabbaths before the Gentiles started responding and the Jews started rebelling. But regardless, we know that it was long enough, however long they stayed there, it was long enough for them to live with them and to provide a good example for them to follow. And the commentary of verse 5, that they set this whole city into an uproar, that's saying something as well. Because Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia. It was a busy city by the sea. The main highway ran east and west, and its population was around 200,000 people. That's 10 times bigger than Arlington. So this wasn't a sleepy town where a few locals lost their cool. No, this was quite a stir, and these men were literally turning the world upside down as they went from one major city to the next. That's the place the scene and the scenario for what would become one of Paul's favorite churches. So we've seen the pastors, the people, and the place. Finally, we are introduced to the preaching. The preaching. It starts right here in the first verse, and it flows all throughout the letter. Paul preaches to his model church with the hope of seeing them excel even more. And it would do us well to follow in their steps as they have followed Paul. So I would like to summarize the five marks of a model church as we find here in 1 Thessalonians. Big picture. If we were to take each chapter and summarize each of this church's distinctives through each chapter, what would they be? What was it about the Thessalonians that made Paul so proud? Why are they a cut above so many of the other churches? Why is his heart bursting with thankfulness and praise as he's surrounded by the Corinthians and he hears good word about them? Well, for starters, we see that the model church is a saved church. It is a saved church. That's what chapter one is all about. And it starts with the last half of verse one. He says, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. These little phrases set the tone and the trajectory for everything that he is about to say. And when he says that they are in God, he means that they are connected to God through a living, personal relationship with God. They are no longer wrapped in themselves. They are living with God, through God, for God, and in God. They aren't out of God. No, they are undeniably in God. And truthfully, that's all that matters. In the end, what else does matter? But that we are in God. I hope that you realize that it is possible. It is very, very possible to be in a lot of godly things and not be in God. You can be in church and out of God. You can be in ministry and still be out of God. Don't confuse perfect attendance with perfect assurance. The saved person exists for God. If you want to glorify, grow, and go, you have to be in God. John Stott says, 
we should paraphrase this preposition in as meaning living in, rooted in, or drawing its life from. I like that. So the church of God lives in God, and it is rooted in God, and it draws its life from God. He then adds, and the Lord Jesus Christ, because you can't know the Father without knowing the Son, without knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way. There is no other path. I am the way, the truth, the life. Essentially, Paul is saying, this church is a saved church. You are a saved church in the Father and in the Son. And only a saved church can experience grace and peace. It sounds obvious, but there are a lot of churches out there today that are not saved. They are not saved. They are not full of saved people. They might have successful programs, entertaining worship or engaging outreach, but they don't glorify, grow, and go. That's not what they do. Paul knew the Thessalonians were the real deal. He was so certain and so sure of their salvation. He claims it over and over again here in chapter one. And look at verse four. He says, for we know, brothers, not that we hope, not that we think or that this could be a possibility. He says, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. I know that I know that you are saved. Why? How? Well, because of your fruit. Because you are the real deal. Because I can see the evidence of conversion in your life. Chapter one just gushes over with thankfulness and praise for the undeniable fruit of conversion in their lives. This was a saved church. In chapter two, we see that the model church is a shepherded church. It is a shepherded church. Paul reminds them of the excellent example that he and Silas and Timothy presented to them. How they suffered well. How they preached boldly and they cared for them gently how they worked hard and modeled godliness and encouraged them to pursue godliness. This was a well-cared-for church. This was a shepherded church. In chapter 3, we see the model church is a steadfast church. A steadfast church. We learn that Paul wanted to know how they were doing. Again, he's dying of suspense. He wants to know, how are the Thessalonians doing? So he sends Timothy back to check up on them. He wants to know, how's Jason? Last time I saw him, they were basically kidnapping him in front of everyone and holding him hostage. And then they were levying all of these government fines against him and against the, against the brothers and against us. How is he doing? How's Jason? How's Aristarchus and the others? We had to leave in a hurry. I, I hope they're okay, and I hope that my ministry there was not in vain. I hope it, was for, I hope it wasn't for nothing. I want to hear that they're at least gathering together and they're growing and that they are becoming the body of Christ as God has called them to be. So when Timothy comes back with good news, Paul has to write them a letter. He has to. We learn that yes, they are being afflicted, but praise God, they are standing fast in the Lord. Their feet are firmly planted on the word of God. In fact, their faith and their love is increasing even more. 
as their own world is disintegrating around them. These were steadfast people. They were a steadfast church. And then in chapter four, we see that the model church is a sanctifying church, a sanctifying church. It's a church with room to grow. So Paul reminds them to pursue holiness, sexual purity, and a quiet, honest life. And he encourages them with the promise of resurrection and rapture. He moves their eyes forward because the hope of tomorrow has a profound impact on how we live today. The model church is saved, shepherded, steadfast, and sanctifying. Finally, the model church is a sober church. A sober church. Chapter 5. He encourages them to not sleep as others do, but to keep awake and be sober. Be sober. He provides a staccato machine gun blast of commands and instructions for staying spiritually awake and sober-minded, especially when the culture around you is so bad. Does anyone ever feel like that today? Like our culture is not honoring God? Are we moving in the right direction or the wrong direction? as a culture. Well, guess what? The Thessalonians, they felt that way too. The Bible was written in a time and a place for a people who were suffering so many of the same things that we endure, in many cases, worse. So he says, be spiritually awake. Be sober-minded. Don't get so caught up in everything that is happening around you. Be aware of that, yes. Be awake. Don't be asleep. But make sure that your heart is focused on the right things. Make sure that your attention is on the word of God, on the pursuit of holiness, of godliness, of becoming more like Christ so that you will think and act like Jesus in the midst of this crooked and depraved generation. I have a feeling that most of this letter will clip along at a decent pace, but we may find ourselves slowing down and taking our time when we get to chapter five because that's where the apostles' preaching really takes off. Well, hopefully we're ready to begin our journey through 1 Thessalonians. Having introduced ourselves to the pastors, the people, the place, and the preaching, we have our bearings, and we can now dive into this incredible letter, one of the earliest letters, if not the earliest letter, that Paul ever wrote back in 51 AD. In the theology class that I teach on Tuesday nights, we recently looked at the ancient process of letter writing in the first century. And now... That process, especially as I was preparing and looking at things this week here for the Thessalonians and familiarizing myself with them trying to travel back in time, I realized that this process was very involved. It included several people. You had the sender who would dictate the letter to an amanuensis, a secretary that was normally paid or hired out, who would do the writing. And they would then give the letter to a messenger who would act as the mailman. And then that messenger would carry it to the city that it needed to go. And then the church would receive the letter, and then a reader would stand up and read the letter in its entirety to the congregation, making them the hearers. So you have this multifaceted process involving a sender, a writer, a messenger, a reader, and a hearer. And in the end, it was as though the sender was right there in the room speaking to the hearers even though he was physically miles away in another town. It carries that authority, and we certainly see that through so much of Paul's writings. He says, I am telling you this, I am commanding you this in the Lord. Do it as though I were there with you. 
because I am in spirit. Eventually, as time went on, and more letters were copied and circulated among the churches, the readers began to exposit these letters. They began to tear them apart and explain them away, like the rabbis would do with the Old Testament scriptures in the synagogues. And as the canon and corpus of scripture came to a close, this practice of unpacking and dividing the New Testament scriptures became the primary pulpit ministry of the church. Consequently, the reader became the primary teacher or the preacher of the congregation. However, it all started with a sender, a writer, a messenger, a reader, and a hearer. So today, before we close, I want to do something I've never done before. I want us to pretend that we have stepped out of that time machine, that we are the church in Thessalonica. Let's pretend that we are a thriving, growing first century church. Let's pretend that our ministry is Christ-centered and gospel-focused, full of faith, hope, and love, but we're also paying the price for it. We're suffering intense persecution as we stand for the truth. We're doing well, but we need encouragement. And as a young church full of pig-eating Gentiles, we need to know if we are on the right path or not. We need to know if we're doing it right or if we're doing it wrong. Well, I have good news. A messenger has just arrived this week, and he has brought us a new letter from Paul. It's short, so I'm going to act as the reader, and I'm going to read the entire thing this morning, start to finish. I know you have a copy, so please follow along, and let's hear what God's man has to tell us, because God knows we need a word from the Lord. He says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, 
but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last." But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now, now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, In all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before the Lord, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see your face, or see you face to face, and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do 
for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. And we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, and the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. The God, or for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you 
and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Heavenly Father, Lord God of heaven, thank you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these faithful men, these pastors who, bring, who brought the gospel in spite of so much opposition to these people in the first century. Thank you for working such a work of grace in their hearts to call them out of darkness, that they would turn from idols to serve the one true living God and look forward to the day when their Savior will come back to bring them home. God, may we be like this church. May we grow in Christ-likeness. May we think and act like Jesus more and more every day as we come together to glorify, to grow, and to go. God, work in our fellowship. May we grow in more and more and more and more and more Christ-likeness as this world around us crumbles, as persecution looms over the horizon, as tough days are ahead, and we know they are, God. Lord, would you give us everything that we need to be a church like this one, to be a saved church, a steadfast church, a church that is sanctifying and growing, a church that is sober, a church that relies on you and you alone for everything that we need and everything that you have to give us. God, we love you. We thank you again for the promises of your word. Thank you for inspiring Paul and moving the apostle's pen to give us these truths and may we be encouraged by them in the months ahead. We love you, Lord. In your name, amen.